Well, we're going um, to cover a lot today in a little bit of time. So we're going to look at 1 Kings. If you have your Bible, we'll be in 1 Kings chapter 17, chapter 18, and chapter 19. Um, so we should, Somebody got nervous. We'll be out in two hours. Don't worry about it. We're good. I'm just kidding. Maybe. Um, we have been on a roller coaster of life these last few years, haven't we? Like, one minute everything's good. And, and, there, and it's been on a, a national, worldwide scale that we've had things that were... That were great. We've had thing. We've been through some lows. Right when we thought we were coming out of something bad, we go back into something bad, and um, you know, we, we go from not being able to meet together to shake hands to can't even cough anymore to not knowing about how much gas is going to cost us next week. Now we're all considering getting horses and biblical riding camels around town. Anybody get amen? Right and. Um, but then I know there have been things in your personal life that you've been through some really highs and you've been through some really dark lows. And I think that you would agree with me that if you look back on the highs and lows starting today and go backwards, you'd probably recognize that it was in the lows when your relationship with God was strengthened. It's always in the lows that he works. Because it's in the lows where we can't take credit for anything because we kind of hit rock bottom. We need him to, to heal us. We need him to, to pull off a miracle. We need him to do something to get us out of this low and pick us up. It's oftentimes in the highs that we live and think that we've done something. And I think a lot of times that we, we approach life thinking with the mindset that everything has to be on a high. But if we've learned anything over the last few years is we have this highs and these lows, and oftentimes we can have the really highs and the really lows. So if this is the consistent pattern of life, how do we handle that as followers of Christ? How do we deal with the highs and how do we manage through the lows? How do, how do we maneuver through this? And, and I'll just tell you right in, out of the gate, in the highs and in the lows, God the Father is the sustainer of life. Colossians says that he holds all things together in him. He is the sustainer. In 1 Kings chapter 17, what we see is a man named Elijah. He was a prophet, a well-known prophet. And they speak of him many times in the New Testament. And Elijah is proclaiming the coming of God and and preaching the message of God to the Israelites, informing them of what's going to happen if they don't turn from their ways and follow him. And Elijah's life in these next few chapters towards the end of, of, of his lifespan at seven, chapter 17, chapter 18, and chapter 19, what we're going to see is a roller coaster ride of his life. And so we'll start in 1 Kings chapter 17. In verse 1, it says, Now Elijah, who was a Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead, said to Ahab, Ask the Lord. Now, by the way, this is King Ahab. He's the worst of the worst. He goes down as like the absolute worst king in all of Israel. Okay, so I want you to understand right out of the gate, Elijah's boldness to go to the king. And Elijah goes to King Ahab and he says, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives. As Ahab, you, you may not believe this anymore, but I'm telling you, he, as sure as he lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. 
And he said, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said, why don't you depart from here and you turn eastward. And so God's given Elijah these messages. So Elijah tells Ahab, there's not going to be any rain. So get ready. And so after he gives this message, God says, now you depart from here. You turn eastward. You hide yourself by the brook just east of the Jordan. He says that you shall, not, you shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went, and he did according to the word of the Lord. And he went, and he lived by this brook that is east of the Jordan. And it says, and the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning. This was like chicken minis from Chick-fil-A. Tasted the same. They buttered the bread and everything. And it says that he drank from the brook. Now, there's no rain, and when there's no rain, rain brings drought, but God sustains him by putting him in a position to be able to get water. He doesn't have to do anything for food. At, at the day, the, the ravens, which is kind of a weird thing, the birds drop it off, but they, they do, and they bring him food every day. Elijah doesn't have to worry about anything. God has sustained him in this moment, so he gets bread and meat in the evening, and he drinks from the brook, and after a while, though, the brook dries up because there was no rain in the land. Now, I'm going to tell you something that I think often we don't like to hear, but it's true. God doesn't mind putting us in positions to strip everything away. And if you think back, there have been times that you've held on to things, and God's had to strip those things away from you because they, they drew our dependence. We, we have to have these things. If I don't have these things, then I don't know what I'll do. But God is in the business of putting us in positions to strip it all away so that all we have left is him. And we know from the scriptures that he's enough. And this is back to David in Psalm 23. The Lord's my shepherd. I have zero wants because he's my shepherd. He satisfies everything. So here's Elijah. God is stripping everything away from him. He's being obedient. He tells the king, no water. You're going to go through drought. When droughts hit, good things do not come out of that. Animals die, people die, life can't be sustained because there's no water. And he's telling them, this is what's going to happen. So God pulls them by this brook and, and everything is going great. But one day, the source of water dries up. Now think about it. Elijah's being obedient. Now God's got him in this position that he's stripping everything away from him. You had all you could drink water. You had all you could eat meat and bread. But today it ends. And there, there's always a drought. But God always sustains. So sometimes the brook dries up. What do you do when your brook dries up? Because you're living in the high. You've been placed in the place where you can be sustained. But haven't you been there? Maybe some of you are there right now that your brook's dried up. I'm just doing what God called me to do, but I feel like my brook has dried up. And where do I go from here? I've done everything you've asked me to do. God, I went to Ahab. I told Ahab exactly what was going to happen. You provided it, and now my brook dries up. And I think a lesson for us here is when the brook dries up, you do whatever God tells you to do when the brook dries up. You go back to John chapter 2. And Jesus goes to the wedding feast, and they run out of wine, and they come to Mary, and they're like, hey, we run out of wine. What are we going to do? You remember what Mary told those guys? 
do whatever Jesus tells you to do. That's, if you don't get anything else from me today, hear this. Do whatever Jesus tells you to do. Doesn't matter what it looks like. Doesn't matter because what, what's going to happen is you're going to do what Jesus tells you to, and it might look like the brook dries up. But you do whatever he tells you to do and be obedient. That's the, that is the mark of a disciple is obedience. You realize that? Like that is the thing that the Bible calls us to is to live in obedience and accordance with the scriptures. So the, the brook dries up and it's a very uncomfortable place. You and I have been in places that have been extremely uncomfortable, but for some reason God has us in this place. It hurts. It stings. It doesn't make any sense. But for some reason, he's got us in this place even when it all goes away. And then what happens is God gives this word to Elijah and he says, now I want you to go and leave this place. And I've got a widow who's going to take care of you. So, so you're going to get up and you're going to go to this, this town. So he says in verse 8 that you rise and go. So if you want to make it through the highs and lows, here's where it starts. It starts with obedience. Because the God of the mountain is the God of the valley. So the one that you celebrate with on the top is the one that we walk through the valley. Remember, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, but I will not fear any evil because you are with me. His presence is with me. And Elijah realizes this when he leaves this brook. God's already got where the brook's dried up in one place. He's already got the sustainment ready for the next place. But here's what happens. Sometimes God will put us in these uncomfortable situations to learn. To learn what it's like when our resources go away. Because what's going to happen in this next few verses is he's going to meet a widow who's poor, by herself, and has no food. Has no food. And, and here's where we are. The widow had no food because why was, that was, why was there no food? Because there was a drought, right? Whose fault was it that was a drought? Well, God sent it. Elijah declared it. And now here we are. And so... There's a drought, and Elijah delivers a word from the Lord to her and tells her that your food, your food will never go away. You're going to be taken care of. And she is. He tells her, until the drought's over, you will always have food. Every time you go back to that jar, it's going to be full. You don't ever have to worry about it again. So Elijah goes from declaring this boldness, a high, to being sustained with food, a high, to the brook drying up, a low, to coming back in to this widow woman and telling her that you're going to have food and he's fed again and she's taken care of because his low point became a high point for her. But things shift in verse 17. It says this, that after this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house became ill and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. Um, read between the lines. This kid's dead. He died. And she said to Elijah, what have you against me, O man of God? As in, whose fault is this? Elijah, why did you do this to me? Like, we thought we were going to die of starvation. We get food. Everything's great because she's on her high point. Now she hits her low, the bottom of the barrel low because her son dies. 
So she says, Elijah, what, what do you have against me, O man of God? He says, this is the accusation she brings. You've come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. You're punishing me for my sins. And he said to her, and this is probably some very difficult things in verse 19, but he, he says he said to her, give me your son. Now why? Because he's dead. And I trusted you. In my high, that you, in my low, I trusted you, and you put me on a high, and now I'm back into my low because my son is dead, and Elijah's commanding, just give me your son. And then these are some of the strangest verses in the Scripture right here. But he says that Elijah took him from her arms. He carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged. He, he took him back to his room, and this is weird. And he laid him on his bed, and he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I'm sojourned? By killing her son. In other words, you brought me here, and then now I'm being accused of killing your son. Why have you done this to me? And sometimes these next verses just go to show that pastors will try anything to make situations better. Verse 21. He says, Then he stretched himself upon the child three times, and he cried to the Lord. Um, no. I would just have to say, sorry. <laughs> I prayed over your son. It didn't work. But he stretches out over this child, and then he says, Oh, Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. And here's the thing. Listen to this verse, because this is true for you and for me. Verse 22 says, And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. Let me give you some good news this morning. You cry out to him, he hears you. He knows your need. He knows when you're in the bottom and you're at your low. He knows. And he hears you. We do not serve a God who is distant. We serve a God who is present and active in our lives today. And he goes before me and he is behind me and he is right here beside me, in front of me. I am surrounded by the presence. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And life of the child came into him again and he revived. God heard the prayer. This woman's about to go from another low point to another high point in verse 23. It says, Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber. Can you imagine what was going through this mom's mind when he took this child upstairs and how weird it would have been if she would have opened the door to find him laid out over him, breathing in his face, just trying whatever it is to get it, and he goes directly to the Lord in the chamber of the house. He takes this child downstairs and delivered him alive and well to his mom. And she said, and Elijah said, see, your son lives. I don't believe in Elijah's mind. It was like, oh gosh. See, your son lives as if he had all this confidence. I believe when he took that child upstairs, he didn't know what was going to be taking place. Right? But he says, see, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, now I know. Now I know that you're a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. See, the son dies. And Elijah has been through this whirlwind of blessing, proclaiming the drought, helping the widow, being accused by the widow, healing the son. He's back on a high. This is really good ministry for him. These are things that he wants to write about in his book. That let me tell you about all the great things that have happened. And every time there's been a high, it's come with a low, low. But he's fixing to have one of the highest moments of his life when we move over 
to the next chapter. And when we read of the widow, one of the things that we need to look at here is that if you want to make it through the highs and lows, you don't only have to be obedient to where God has you. It also involves you crying out to God. I think that's a practice that we don't do enough of, is audibly crying out to the Lord in our pain, in our frustrations, in our anger, because we think that, oh, I can't get mad at God. I can't say these things to God. Well, let's look back on the scripture and see how people were really, really honest. We're going to see that in just a minute with Elijah. Things are really, really good out in the public, but we're going to get to him in the private and get to see something nobody else saw. But we got to be in a place to understand if we want to make it through the highs and lows, there is a communication stream that needs to be happening between us and God. Because if we're not talking to him and crying out to him, the things of Christ deteriorate. So what will help us with our affirmations towards God to be closer to him? You got to cry out. We get the first Kings chapter 18. See, it wasn't so bad. We moved through an entire chapter that quick. We get to chapter 18. This is the highlight. Ahab bumps into Elijah. Now, he's, last time they met, it wasn't good news for Ahab. This time, Ahab says, hey, aren't you the troublemaker? You caused all this trouble for Israel. And, and Elijah's like, I didn't cause this. You did by your poor leadership. But that's a whole number, another story. And so he tell, he's bold again because he's walking on his high, right? He can take over the entire world. He can do whatever he wants at this point because he feels untouchable because his ministry is booming. And he says, I'll tell you what, if you think your God, Ahab, that you serve the God, the God of Baal, you think it's so great, why don't we have a little competition between Yahweh and Baal? I'll bring uh, my God and you bring your God and let's build two altars. And what's interesting is the altar that Elijah builds, it doesn't say that he builds it from scratch. He rebuilds the altar that was there. If that tells you anything about the culture that was going on, they just completely demolished the place of worship to worship this false god. And they say, okay, well, you bring, you bring yours. We'll bring ours. Here's two bulls, which bulls were tied to the God of Baal. And he cut them into pieces, and they put them on the altar. And it says, I'll tell you what, I'll let you go first. You can have home-filled advantage. You pray, and let's see if your God brings fire down from heaven and burns what is on the altar. And it's so funny, this story, because as you get and read it, after a few hours, Elijah, I can just imagine, is sitting in a lawn chair and it says that he starts yelling insults at the prophets. There were like 800 prophets. There were 450 of Baal, and there were 400 of another uh, idol. And they were all working together. He was outnumbered 850 to 1. And Elijah, in his confidence, is yelling out. And at one point, if you read it in the Hebrew, he's basically saying, Hey, is your God on bathroom break? What's going on? Because here's the thing. The God of Baal was the God of lightning and rain. This should have been an easy one. So after a while, Elijah knows that this isn't going to work for him, so he puts his plan to action. He takes it another step. After the altar's rebuilt, he digs a trench around it. And this is what's interesting. And this will tell you about his belief in the sustainment that God was going to have for him. He filled the trenches with water. Must I remind you they're in a drought. Where did this water come from? Many believe that this water, because some people would say it came from the Mediterranean. I have been to Mount Carmel 
There's no way they walked to the Mediterranean and back to get that water. They would have died. It was a couple of days away. Scholars believe that the water that they used came from their personal pouches, that they, their canteens. And they filled this trench with their personal water, knowing that God was going to take care of them. And they filled it, and Elijah begins to pray. And as he prays, verse 38 of chapter 18 says this, Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust. In other words, nothing was left. And it was so hot that it licked up the water that was in this trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord is God. Now, we can move right past that really, really quickly. But, but they make this proclamation that the Lord... He is God. You know what that is in Hebrew? Elijah. Elijah. And he hears the chanting of the Lord is God. Elijah, Elijah, Elijah. And as they're calling his name in Hebrew, they are proclaiming through saying his name that the Lord is God. When we walk through the highs and the lows, you need to be reminded who you serve. Because it's easy to recognize God on the mountaintop, but in the valley, we will sacrifice him first. He's the first thing to go away. Let your schedules get busy this week. Watch what the first thing that goes is. We'll sacrifice our time in our community group. We'll sacrifice our time um, in our Bible study. We'll sacrifice church time. It's, it's always the first thing that goes. You have to be reminded of the God that you serve. And I don't believe by them chanting this was a, an ego boost for Elijah. He was named this for a reason. But it was further confirmation to him of who he served. Every time his name is called, he's reminded that God is Lord. In the brook, with the widow, he's reminded so you think about it. He hears from God. He prophesies. No more water. Going to be a drought. Sorry about it. Deal with it. God sustains him with food. Brook dries up. A low point. High point. Helps a widow get to her high point. Low point. Widow's son dies. High point. He's alive again. High point. He just took out 800 prophets. Right? I didn't read the next verse, but let me tell you what happens after the fire falls down. Everybody celebrates. Um, Elijah goes into um, savage mode here, and it says that he drags them all down by the river that was dried up, and he kills them all and goes ahead and just eradicates everything. But he's going to hit his low, and this is going to be the lowest of the low. Because as he's reminded who he is, as he's reminded who he is, is when typically when you start getting attacked spiritually. It's when Satan begins to get into our minds. And we can quickly disqualify ourselves from doing any type of ministry real fast. Do you agree with me on that? We think that we're not good enough. We won't, sometimes won't spend time with God because we feel that we're not good enough to be in his presence. 
Let me, let me side note this real quick. Matthew chapter 3, verse 17. It's, it's the baptism of Jesus. And as John's about to baptize him, before the baptism of Jesus, what miracles did Jesus do? What work of ministry did Jesus do before Matthew chapter 3? Let me help you out. Zero. He hadn't done anything. He's done nothing to prove that he's a Messiah. He's done no ministry work whatsoever. And I want you to pay close attention to what he says. When he's about to be baptized, the Lord speaks. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Now, what has Jesus done up to this point? Nothing. Nothing that's been recorded. You need to write down on your bathroom mirror. But because before you do the first thing in ministry and the first thing in the calling that God's given you, he's already said, this is my son, this is my daughter in whom I'm well pleased. Because we get our identities caught up in everything else, don't we? You think about our identities. They're always tied to what we do and who we are. But are they ever tied to us being sons and daughters of the high king? This is the love and the grace that Jesus has for us is that before you do anything, he's already loved you. And there's nothing that you and I can do to make him love us less or make us love us anymore. His love is 100%. As we're in Christ, it's 100% that he loves us. And this is what Elijah is experiencing. That God has loved him throughout this whole process, even from birth. And we move in to 1 Kings chapter 19. And there's a massive life shift for Elijah. Because in 1 Kings 19, Elijah's life gets threatened because Ahab was married to this crazy woman named Jezebel. Y'all heard of her? You ever called somebody that or been called that? It's not a good name to be called. There's actually, if you do the whole research, there's a whole study on the spirit of Jezebel. That if you've been around toxicity, within, especially in church life, um, there, there's a whole spirit of Jezebel that is on people. And I, I don't want to get into all that, but you can research it. It's, it's rather interesting. But look at, look at 19. So Ahab tells his wife, and, and the reason, by the way, that there's, there's idol worship happening in Israel at this point in time is because Ahab allowed it because he decided to marry someone who was all about it. And so, you know, he, to please his wife, he allows us to come into Israel, but yet he falls into it and begins worshiping these gods. So we get in here to verse 19, and it says that Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all of their prophets with the sword. And then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, and she said this, so, so may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of my prophets by this time tomorrow. In other words, I'm going to cut your head off. You kill all of my prophets, you better hide and seek because I'm coming to find you. And so he says in verse 3, then he was afraid. Now, up until this point, have we read that about him? I mean, he went to the king and told the king there's a drought. He killed their prophets, annihilated them because the God of the lightning and the thunder couldn't do anything. And he, and he annihilates them. Now we get to 19. He goes from his high. This is the lowest that we're going to see Elijah because it says that he was afraid. And he arose and he ran for his life and he came to Beersheba which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. He left his servant there. Let me tell you something about fear. He becomes afraid, and everything that happened to him in these other chapters 
has been fine, but in chapter 19, there is fear. Fear is not an emotion. It's not a feeling. First Timothy says that is a spirit of fear. And Paul tells us that God did not give us a spirit of fear. He has pulled himself away, and now he is believing in himself, and the spirit of fear has come upon him. And the first thing that he does is put himself in isolation. He, he leaves the person that he's come with, his servant, and he leaves him behind. I, I, I just want to tell you, fear is not of the Lord. You, can't, you can be scared. You can be nervous. You can be anxious, but not fearful. Because fear causes stagnation. It'll cripple you from doing the things that you need to do. It'll cripple you. It's not of God. So when we move into to verse 4, he says this. And he's by himself, and this is what he says. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. And he came and he sat underneath a broom tree. And this is his prayer to God. And he asked God that he might die. Now, would you agree that he's at a pretty low point in his life? But you look back and you go, but Elijah, look what God has done with you. And he, the fire consumed everything. He sustained you in every single season. And then because of your obedience, he sustained other people. And now because some crazy woman has threatened your life, you're going to let it disrupt the entire calling that God has placed on you? I mean, it's easy for us to look at the track record and go, what are you thinking, man? But what if we look back on our lives? Because we get so, you've got these blinders on that we forget what God's done in the past. Because we're focused in the moment. And we lose, we lose our perspective. And so he tells God, can I just die? And he says this, It is not enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I'm no better than my father's. And this is the guy, by the way, that when they refer to the God of Abraham and Elijah, and, and Abraham and um, Jacob and, and Isaac, you know what I'm talking about. Elijah's always thrown into that mix. But he is discrediting himself. And he says, and, and he lay down and he slept underneath the broom tree hoping that he wouldn't wake up. You ever been in those moments where you've gone to your bed in the dark and pulled the covers over your head just hoping you don't wake up? Let's be honest. We've had those. It'd be easier if I just wasn't here. But God sees those moments. And he says, behold, an angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. And he looked and behold, there was at his head a cake that had been baked on hot stones and a jar of water. It's interesting because the, the stones and the jar of water are the same things that God provided for the widow to sustain her. And it's almost as if God's just giving Elijah a reminder. And he says, and he ate and he drank, but he lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat. For the journey is too great for you. In other words, God said, I'm not going to let you die, but you're not staying here. You're not staying here. 
He said, this journey is going to be too great for you. It goes into verse 8, and it says that Elijah arose, and he ate, and he drank, and he went in the strength of that. That was what was sustaining him in the moment. He, he still has not been sustained by the Spirit because he hasn't accepted that. He is still in this place of depression and ready to give up. And, and so he, he's sustained on this food 40 days and 40 nights. He goes to Mount Horeb, and the Mount of God is where he goes. He has to go to the place where God is. There's some things for us to learn here. In Elijah's lowest point, he finds himself in isolation. Let me tell you, in the highs and lows, do not isolate. The Bible points against everything that's against isolation. God is a communal God. He is a God that wants us in relationship. The first thing we do is when, when bad happens, we will leave the church. Because it's better to be in isolation than to be real. And let me tell you why that is. Because the church has done a really awful job at accepting people that don't look like us, that don't talk like us, that don't go to the same restaurants that we do, that don't have the same lingo that we do. They may have all these other things. They have a drinking problem, smoking problem. They can't be one of us until they get clean and come in here. Y'all know what I'm talking about? But he says, don't be in isolation. The Bible tells us that the devil roams around looking. Animals are best protected. You go look at the, the antelope of Africa. They're best protected when they're together. You don't see one of the antelopes going, nah, dude, you got to get out of our herd. We do that in the church all the time. It's because somebody doesn't look, talk, act like us. We just kick them out. And think about what we're kicking them out to. To the enemy that is roaming to devour them. I can't bring them to church. They cuss like every five seconds. Well, cool. Maybe Jesus will change that. And if not, we'll just tell people he's speaking in a different tongue. It's fine. But we have been known to put people in isolation. We have been known to isolate. Do me a favor and don't isolate. Find somebody. Elijah is isolated. He goes to this cave. He's there in fear. And he's been separated. He's been 40 days. And he's in a cave by himself. And he's just seeking a word from the Lord. And the Bible tells us, it goes on in verse 9, he says, There he came to a cave and he lodged in it, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. See, God's always speaking, even when we're trying to run. Even in our isolations, God's trying to speak. He says that the Lord, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing? Sometimes we need that wake up call, don't we? What are you, what are you doing? What are you doing? How did you get here? Now, God knows the answer to this question, doesn't he? But sometimes he's asking us that question because we need to process it and be able to answer that. Because what he wants is Elijah to think back on all the high points that he's had through his ministry. Of course, there's some lows, but he wants him to see, even in the low, I was with you. So what are you doing here? And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. Well, that's not why you ran. You ran in fear that you're going to be killed. 
He says that they've thrown down your altars. They've killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, I'm the only one left. And they're trying to kill me and take that away. And this is probably some of the most powerful pieces of scripture. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. You got to get out of your cave. And behold, the Lord passed by Elijah. And a great and strong wind tore the mountain. Think about this wind now. Wind is always synonymous. The word wind is the same word as spirit. In the New Testament, it would be the word pneuma. Wind, breath, spirit. And the Lord passed in this great and strong wind, tore the mountains apart, and it broke them into pieces, the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was a sound of a low whisper. And listen to this. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and he went out and he stood at the entrance of the cave. The Lord's telling Elijah, you're looking in all the wrong places for me. Well, sometimes I'm closer than you think that I am. Why did God whisper to Elijah? Proximity. I don't have to whisper to people who I'm close to. I'm with you in the cave. You're looking for me to do all these great things, Elijah. And we have. But I need you to understand how close I am even in the low. Even in the low. It's in the highs and lows that we find God and we hear God's voice. God is often found in the small things. When you go through these lows... Ask God to reveal himself of where he's at. He's not forsaken you. He's looking for you to respond to him. We're looking for miracles and we're asking God to move mountains and, and he will. But oftentimes we miss the whole, he's right beside us, whispering his promises and his words of life into us. I'll give you a couple of reflection questions to think about today is that how often do I get in the cave? Because he had to get into that cave to hear. He had to have some personal time with God. And let me tell you, he had some personal time with God. You know what happens after this? When he recognizes this and he's, he, okay, God, I got it. They're going to be loose. He goes right back out. And God puts him in some more high places. But it was what happened in that cave that would set the stage for what was going to happen next. He goes and appoints Jehu as king of Israel. You know what Jehu did? Jehu had a field day getting rid of the idols to restore Israel back to what it was supposed to be. And then, then this. On his journey, God appoints for him and sets up this divine intervention for him to meet a man named Elisha who's going to take up the mantle of Elijah to take his place. And Elijah never faced physical death. God called him up in a fiery chariot 
And to this day, people in Israel are still confused. Are you John the Baptist? Are you, is it John the Baptist? Is this Elijah? Is Jesus Jesus or is he Elijah? Because they're still waiting on Elijah to come back. They hadn't figured out where the man went. Sometimes in the cave is God using things to set up for you to hear his whisper to prepare you for the next thing. The lows are a stage of preparation for the next thing. Enjoy the highs, but embrace the lows. Here's another question. What, what's causing my affections to be deteriorated? My affections for Jesus. How, how much time am I spending with him? What, what am I watching? What am I listening to? What is consuming my time? How are my affections for Jesus being deteriorated? And then am I spending constant and consistent time in the cave, intentionally hearing from him, crying out to him? What am I doing? The cave is the place to find the sustainment. It wasn't the high times that sustained Elijah. It was the time in the cave with the presence of the Father. And so as we close today, we're going to bring you some bad news. Low days are coming. But we don't have to embrace them as low days and let them control our lives. We have to look to the King of Kings and the Lord to embrace what He wants to do. So in these next few moments, I want to pray and just ask God to, to stir our affections, to spend time with Him, to hear His, His voice. So, Father, I thank you now for what you're doing in this place. You are a God that sustains. And, Father, I know there's hurt in this room. These, these past two years have beaten and battered many people that are here. We've lost friendships. We've lost loved ones. We have felt the blows of life. But as we look back, we realize that you are God sustained and helped us move through those times and we've drawn closer to you so I pray in these next few moments that God we would just reflect that we would make room for you to move that we would move out of the way and just this next moments that we would hear your your spirit and be obedient in what he tells us to do and we pray these things in the name of Jesus